Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student, back for, I think, episode 65 maybe. Didn't know that it would ever make it this far, and I think it's been kind of fun. For our um, celebratory 60-something podcast, we have uh, a new, fresh group of students who are going to talk to us about antipsychotics and cardiovascular risk. Does that sound right, Elliot? Yeah. So, I'm Elliot. I'm a third-year medical student at RVU, um, and we're going to talk about cardiovascular disease in the setting of antipsychotic use um, and severe mental illness with a specific focus more on schizophrenia because it seems to be that that is um, the people with schizophrenia have a higher incident um, or risk of cardiovascular disease in general. So you guys are familiar with the introductions. Let's start with uh, the non-stars of this podcast, so to speak. Michaela, do you want to give us uh, your introduction? All right, my name is Michaela Schweitzer Hennen. I am also a third year at RVU along with Elliot and some of our other colleagues who are here. I'm uh, particularly interested in oncology and palliative care, but since psychiatry plays such a big role in that, this has been a really exciting experience for me. Good to have you here, Scott. Hi, I'm Scott. I'm a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner student at University of South Alabama, uh, mostly online, and I'm you know trying to get to this uh, clinic and become a, you know like a, a nurse practitioner in, in psych which is awesome so you uh, mostly I don't take students that are not from Rocky Vista do you want to tell everybody here how you managed to sneak your way in here uh, yeah uh, well I I had a co-worker um, uh, the, a nurse co-worker I, I work with in the IMC who uh, is married to uh, I'm not sure what, uh, like a medical student, I'm not sure what sh year she was in, but I think her name's uh, Haley. Oh, it's uh, Haley, all right. Haley. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, she was able to kind of talk to Dr. Randy about it, and, and I was able to like get in. Haley uh, holds a dear place in my heart. I, I have to admit it, she was here for two Christmases at the Utah State Hospital. Was abs absolutely wonderful helping out patients and ensuring that the patients had the best Christmas possible. And when she asked me to do something, I melt. Uh, I, I'm the first to admit it. It's great to have you here, Scott. Max? Hello, everyone. My name is Max Muir. I'm also a third-year medical student at Rocky Vista University down in southern Utah um, and a classmate of Michaela and Scott's. Um, at the moment, I'm interested in uh, general surgery and, uh, yeah, just going to be providing a little backup to Elliot's podcast here. Elliot, you are the star of the podcast, and I have to say right off the start, 70-whatever uh, articles that you put in for me to read over the last 24 <laughs> hours didn't overwhelm me. I'm glad to hear that it didn't overwhelm you, because I think I was overwhelmed as I looked at all the studies and was trying to figure out um, exactly what the consensus was on cardiovascular disease um, in the setting of severe mental illness. It doesn't seem or it seems like we're starting to focus on that aspect of care a little bit more lately. Um, but some of the research articles, it's difficult to get a good cohort of um, patients to have a decent enough sample size to um, show that your findings actually are statistically significant. Um, so that was a little bit of a challenge. And I think for me, the other part that I had to do was, uh, as I dove into this, I became fascinated by all of the articles and I found myself going into 
a bunch of different little holes. And uh, I think I told Scott and Will uh, the other day that you know this might be five hours long by the time I'm finished with everything I've looked at. So we'll hopefully make it like an hour or less. <laughs> so I said it didn't bury me. I was yes. trying to think of what the word worse than buried <laughs> and overwhelmed was, but I couldn't come up with it. It was unbelievable and very cool. Now you're planning on going into cardiology. Um, yeah, cardiology is uh, one of the things I'm thinking about right now. I've also thought about doing pulmonary critical care. Um, I don't know if I want to do adults or peds yet, uh, but those are the two things at the top of my list. But I will say just being here and doing this experience at the state hospital, it's been eye-opening and I've enjoyed it uh, immensely. And I think that it has opened my eyes to just the need in the field of psychiatry to have, you know, psychiatrists and mental health nurse practitioners and therapists and, you know, just a broader group of people that are willing to help care for these patients because I think that oftentimes they're underserved and that's unfortunate. Um, and just kind of the stigmatization that goes with mental health care in general. I think we're doing a better job confronting that, but psychiatry is definitely wasn't something that was of interest to me before I walked in here, I'll be honest, but it is now. <laughs> I think I've mentioned this to a lot of people before that my goal when somebody leaves the rotation is that they feel incredibly comfortable providing the care to every patient that walks through their door. And if you can work with somebody that has severe mental illness, my feeling is you can be a great physician for anybody. So that's, that's mm -hmm. what I hope is happening here. And if uh, some of you get lost along the way and decide you want to be psychiatrists, come join the gang. <laughs> On that note, uh, what I want to do is uh, pack in a little bit of the high yield kind of information. Mm -hmm. So antipsychotics have, uh, antipsychotic medications, there are a fair number of questions that group antipsychotic medications together and say, this class, this group, or maybe even specific answers, this antipsychotic needs to be known for this side effect, this problem, this benefit, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we wanted to focus in on at the very beginning of the uh, podcast is the type of information that is tested um, by shel shelf exams or the you know the prep material that Scott would be doing. I don't know that I know the name of your exam after the rotation or if you even have one, but uh, you have access to those kinds of quiz materials, right? And and so Scott, tell me the kinds of principles that are tested that you came across in your review of the material of test material. Uh, so it, with my review, the two banks that I've been, I've been doing, there's a lot of uh, questions about uh, uh, pretty much just like the uh, best uh, treatment for um, patients, again, with schizophrenia medications and like the dosing and what like the important side effects of each medications are. I think it's the big part of it because, you know, we, we, we don't want to do any harm to the patients and I think, you know, that's... Uh, I believe it's a big part of it as well. So, so the questions that focus in on uh, weight gain, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, how do those questions seem to play out? What what kinds of things do they look at? Um, like for for what I've seen so far, um, I've like the questions I was getting was uh, like what what drugs could be like contributing to. Um, patients like um, you know uh, hypo hyperglycemia or um, anything that could be causing their weight gain like you know like uh, Abilify or any like medications 
So the different role and the unique characteristics of the medications in weight gain. So as we're going through this podcast, what I think people want to listen for are either class characteristics between first generation and second generation antipsychotics, or uh, depending on how we view the podcast tomorrow, potentially third generation antipsychotics, and then specific antipsychotic medications within the classes that may have more or less risk for those kinds of things. And I think the questions probably focus on that. Mm-hmm. With that in mind, um, I probably need a primer on cardiovascular disease. I think JNCC three or four might have been published when I went through residency, and uh, yeah, I, I'm determined to read it every year, but I haven't. So catch yes. me up on on JNCC and uh, ADA standards and things along those lines, would yeah, you? I will. So they, uh, I think we're up to like seven now, is what I'd say. Like seven was the last one that was used kind of in the studies um, that I had been um, looking at as far as people with schizophrenia and cardiovascular disease. And the guidelines, as far as the risk factors that you're looking at, typically they're gonna be um, hypertension, um, dyslipidemia, and you're also looking at diabetes. And those were the big three things that parlay into the population of people with schizophrenia um, and the specific risk, risk factors and controlling for those. So typically when you're starting somebody on antipsychotic, you're gonna order labs to get a baseline, or you should be ordering labs to get a baseline for those three things. And then you want to see if somebody doesn't have pre-existing diabetes, for example, or pre-existing um, hypercholesterolemia, then you're wanting to um, have that baseline and then monitor that. And if they start to develop any symptoms or lab changes that are suggestive of those, then you quickly want to control for those those factors. So the goal for um, the A1 hemoglobin A1C is that you want to have it be less than seven, and then for um, your lipid profile. Typically you wanna have your LDL, which is gonna be your bad cholesterol. You wanna have that be less than 100. But the interesting thing that I read was that they're now, instead of looking at LDL being less than 100, they're focusing on the intensity of the statin that you use um, to treat people when they have dyslipidemia. And there was actually some studies, and we can talk about this later, that. Sh- that showed statins, um, and specifically like the use of risperidone, can increase the efficacy in treatment of patients with schizophrenia. I was kind of interested by that. So just I, I just want to summarize what I think I've heard so far, and that is that um, this is ADA standards or, or uh, JNC, uh, JNCC standards? So, it's the, so the JNCC, um, is the A1C, the blood pressure, which I forgot to mention, was 130 over eight, less than 130 over 80 is the goal, and the LDL less than 100. Um, and then the um, American Heart Association, they were who focuses really on having that LDL, rather than focusing on the LDL intensity being less than 100, they're focusing on the statin intensity as their new guideline um, that they were recommending, and that was in 2019 that they kind of switched to focus on statin intensity versus a target LDL level. And then um, the American Diabetes Association, they uh, agreed in conjunction with JNC7 that this is these are the goals for um, management. Tell me a little bit about Framingham. So Framingham is a 
um, ten-year risk calculator, and it's assessing your ten-year risk of um, coronary heart disease. And what it's looking at is it's gender-specific, and it's going to take into account your gender, your age. It's going to take into account your total cholesterol and then your um, HDL. And then it does. I used MD Calc to run through it. Um, and you have to be older than 40 for it to work. So there is um, some unfortunate, like you can't use this if you have a patient that you're treating and they have metabolic syndrome and you're concerned about coronary heart disease. You can't use this calculator because it only works for patients between 40 and 79. Um, but then it does some complex math and gives you a percentage um, that their percent risk of having a cardiac event in the next 10 years. So this was sort of like uh, when you were a kid and you faked your ID, you put in a fake age to make it run? Correct. Okay. Something like that. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> All right. Uh, he can neither confirm nor deny fake ID use. Um, the Framingham data, I believe, is based on a longitudinal study where, like, an entire city came together mm -hmm. and decided to be part of a study. Are yeah. you, is that sound right? That sounds right to me. I didn't get into the history. I didn't look at, like, the total history of it, but... Um, that is kind of the standard. And then what the American Heart Association also recommends using is the um, ASCVD score, like, and that's your arthrosclerotic, arthrosclerotic um, cardiovascular disease risk calculator. And it's similar, it's gonna give you a 10 year um, risk score. And they felt, at least the American Heart Association feels that that is a better predictive indicator for um, coronary heart disease. So um, coronary artery disease getting better or worse in the American population? So overall, uh, we've gotten better at preventing the complications in the general population. We've gotten better at managing it and reducing um, people's um, modifiable risk factors. So we have become like aggressive, for example, like cigarette smoking. I'm sure everyone's seen the um, ads online or on TV about, you know, don't smoke cigarettes because you're going to end up talking through, you know, and having a robot voice essentially is, I think, what they use to scare everyone. Um, and so we've gotten good at emphasizing um, lifestyle changes and modifying risk factors. Uh, and then we've re gotten really good at using statins to control for uh, and reduce people's LDL because the LDLC is what uh, directly correlates to people's coronary artery, uh, like their risk of having a MI or um, coronary artery disease. So if we can reduce that through the use of statins, we can have people have lifestyle changes, then we can reduce the risk of them having a coronary um, having coronary heart disease, and we found that or, to be very successful for coronary artery disease. Or coronary artery, okay. Yeah. Uh, so what I'm hearing from you is that I can continue to gain weight and just get a statin. No, so exercise <laughs> is, the, is one of those things that we wanna really emphasize. I'm sure we're all, you know, active 60 minutes a day. At least. At least five <laughs> at least. days a week, but, um, you know, those exercise would be one of those other modifiable risk factors that we really have emphasized along with diet. Um, you know, so you can look up online like doing the Mediterranean or a cardiac diet. Um, and all of those things together are what reduce people's overall risks. And we've been highly successful at that in the general population. And we've also gotten really good at um, 
doing uh, catheterizations of people so that when they come in with say a STEMI then we um, have protocols to get them up to the cath lab um, and get a stent in and unblock that um, clogged artery. So those two things together, so we have the modifiable like lifestyle changes, we have the use of medications including antihypertensives and um, statins and then we can do our percutaneous um, procedures when somebody, if they do have an MI, then we can do that. And then, again, emphasize the lifestyle changes to reduce the risk. I think we are getting more overweight as a society. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the one factor where we're losing ground. Does that sound right? Yep. So this, this leads us in uh, somewhat to the next area of discussion and uh, schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. There are, I mean, you, you mentioned the rabbit holes that you went down, right? Yep. I, I read, uh, at least a handful of the articles as quickly as I could. Yeah. Trying to make sure that I was at least on sort of the same page with you. And I think I was intrigued by how complicated it is to look at cardiovascular risk in schizophrenia. Talk mm -hmm. to me about that. So it's complicated because kind of like I mentioned when we started, we haven't had a lot of research specifically looking at schizophrenia and cardiovascular disease. Um, and the burden that people with schizophrenia, like how cardiovascular disease burden affects people with schizophrenia. So that is one of the difficulties in understanding it. The other thing is, is that the studies that we do have, they, sh they show that um, people with schizophrenia, they have between a two to six time um, increased risk of having um, cardiovascular disease compared to the general population. Okay, I'm going to hold you right there so that mm -hmm. we make this really clear. This is without treatment. Without treatment. So that is people that, ha people that have schizophrenia, but they're not being treated with an antipsychotic. Their risk of having cardiovascular disease is two to six times that of the general population. It's speculated that sedentary lifestyle, mm -hmm. smoking tobacco, or perhaps some sort of uh, gene that confers the risk for schizophrenia might, might explain this. But I'm not sure I found anything um, that explains why that risk might be elevated in patients with schizophrenia. Yeah, there's not anything conclusive. That's one of the things um, the more recent articles that I looked at are looking at. And like you'd mentioned, Dr. Roundy, the, um, seeing if there's a correlation between a gene that um, correlates with people that have schizophrenia and if there is an association with that gene in cardiovascular disease is something of interest, but there are, there's not a lot of studies and then there's so many polymorphisms that they've looked at that it's, there's not like one specific gene. You're not gonna say that, you know, this gene causes um, cardiovascular disease and schizophrenia, in, you know, 90% of the time. That's a little bit different than something that I think we can say right now and that is that at least some antipsychotic medications clearly seem to increase weight, increased waist mm -hmm. size, and increase at least some markers for cardiovascular risk. Does that seem like a fair statement? Yep. All right, so, so we have a patient population that is already at risk. We have studies that are trying to figure out what the additional risk is from the addition of antipsychotic medications and then try and figure out how we tackle that. Does that sound about right? Yes. So is that kind of the rest of the podcast in a nutshell with a yeah. few? With a few 
you know, interjections, and I'm sure we will maybe get off off track a little bit. Um, <laughs> With a little luck. Yeah. So let me ask the next question then. If these antipsychotic medications clearly increase cardiovascular risk factors, and they might actually make it so that the lifespan is... Um, well, let me not ask the question that way. Let me ask the question this way. If these medications do, uh, many of them seem to cause an increase in cardiovascular risk, why do we use them? Um, because I think it's like any medication that we use, we have to assess what the risks and the benefits of using the medication versus not using that medication are. Um, and before the advent of antipsychotics, the way in which we managed people with schizophrenia was less than desirable and they had very poor outcomes. So the fact that we now have um, a multitude of antipsychotics that we can use, even though they have adverse side effects, um, having patients be compliant with those or adhere to those medications, the benefits of them doing so allows them to be more functional in society at large than if they were to not have those medications. And so the risk of you know, cardiovascular disease through the use of these medications is something we've deemed as an acceptable risk. You have a comment here about qualies, I think, or dailies. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that, because I think you did some research on the actual like morbidity value change for use of antipsychotic medications. Yeah, so dailies are, um, that's like your years lived with disability plus years of life lost um, to premature mortality. Um, and so one of the things that some of the articles I've looked at that was interesting was through the use of antipsychotics, patients that have schizophrenia, they are living longer. However, we've done a poor job of treating cardiovascular disease in these patients and other diseases that um, affect the general population. And so the, there's a widening in the mortality between the general population and patients with schizophrenia. And it's not that we, and it's not because of schizophrenia itself, it's because we're not managing the cardiovascular disease and the other you know, comorbidities like, yeah, Max was just about to say um, that these patients also suffer from in addition to schizophrenia. When I read the articles, sometimes I want to pull my hair up because it sounds like it's making the case that, it, depending on how the article is written, mm -hmm. that the lifespan of our patients treated with antipsychotic medications is being shortened. Yeah. That doesn't appear to be the case. No, it's definitely the opposite of that. Like our patients, through the use of antipsychotics, they are actually living longer. And I think that that is a good parlay into something Max was looking at. Um, which was, go ahead. Uh, definitely the, I think, uh, like Elliot was saying, um, the risk, uh, you have to weigh the risk and benefits, and one of those risks with uh, schizophrenia is suicide. Um, depending on the study and depending on the, the sample uh, or a cohort that's being studied, um, cardiovascular disease or suicide is listed as the leading cause of death. Um, and I think that does depend greatly on, on the, the age of the population. It seems that like the earlier the age of onset of schizophrenic symptoms, um, more likely to uh, die by suicide in people with schizophrenia. So 
kind of see some survivor bias in like old in an older cohort you're going to see maybe more cardiovascular disease as a cause of death um, but basically the the risks of uh, suicide um, and being treated with clozapine or these other uh, atypical an antipsychotics but specifically clozapine um, it's it's basically been shown that the lifespan is going to be increased overall so the intercept study in 2003 uh, the authors uh, Meltzer um, said that probably 50% of patients um, with schizophrenia will attempt suicide at some point in their life and that's a huge huge number um, I think the lifetime risk um, uh, Palmer in 2005 it was found that the lifetime risk of suicide is like 4.9 and like several other more recent studies have duplicated those findings so um, in 2019 for um et al they uh, they did this meta-analysis basically on all of these um, different studies and these different uh, uh, studies of using clozapine specifically um, in these long-term um, treatment treatment mm -hmm. plans the, they found that the unadjusted long-term mortality rate um, in the median age of seven years for uh, it, it basically reduced uh, mortality very significantly. And it was found that um, clozapine needs to be continued um, or else uh, that, that effect is immediately stopped. So when you, th when you take clozapine out of their treatment protocol, the protective effect uh, for suicide is lost. But basically, I think that uh, antipsychotics um, while they may increase risk of some cardiovascular disease, they're going to decrease risk of suicide. And the, like you said, our, our protocols now with uh, treating cardiovascular disease kind of outweighs those, uh, those risks. So yeah. overall, patients are living longer. So Herbert Meltzer is probably one of my favorite uh, authors. He writes a great number of studies that have been, in my mind, very impactful. The Intercept study, I-N-T-E-R-S-E-P-T -E study, is perhaps one of the most compelling articles in all of psychiatry. Other people would probably disagree with me. But as far as I can tell, it's one of the few studies that says we have a medication that changes lifespan, right? That's Excess right. mortality in schizophrenia is largely due to suicide, if I understand correctly. Yes. The most years lost in life are due to suicide and unusual deaths, I think, is kind of the way they talk about it. Our mm -hmm. patients die in an unusual and strange ways. And having people taking clozapine seems to be the one thing that can change that risk. Now, even though you mentioned that other antipsychotics probably are helpful, I think we have more data they help patients move back into the community and be successful within the Definitely. community. Um, mm -hmm. Not the same data about suicide, right? That's true, yes. And, uh, and so I just want to make sure that that's very clear. So if you're seeing questions about suicidality and schizophrenia, um, think, think about clozapine, yeah. Or Meltzer clozapine. also said in 1998 that the potential decrease in suicide on for schizophrenic patients treated with clozapine was estimated to be as high as 85%. So that's just yeah. such a significant number. I think it's important to point that out. Um, at the same time, like Max mentioned earlier, patients that stop clozapine prematurely are at an increased risk of mortality compared to patients who'd never been treated with clozapine. So I think um, that's the other side of the coin it's important to mention because continuity is difficult sometimes in patients due to poor access to medications or non-compliance. So it's just important to acknowledge that the protective effect is lost when a patient stops clozapine. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, the data is very specific to clozapine. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I mean, what, what I w am consistently left with when I review this data is 
something very basic, which is I may not have time to stop the suicide unless I get to clozapine fairly, fairly quickly mm -hmm. or use any other antipsychotic sometimes. Other, you know, sometimes clozapine doesn't help. Yeah. Generally, it's going to be the most helpful medication, but that's not 100% right. And, and so the next thing I think about is, okay, now I have time to try and figure out the metabolic syndrome problem, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if we're trying to solve the schizophrenia problem and we're killing our patients in a preventable way, then we need to address that. Now, I think you had an article in the list of 237 articles that you sent me. I think it was 300, but was it 300? I could be wrong. You said so in the I think there was an article in there that said, we're not giving the same care to our patients with schizophrenia that have uh, metabolic syndrome symptoms mm -hmm. that we would give to an equivalent patient without schizophrenia. Tell yeah. me more about that. Yeah, so that article that Dr. Um, Roundy mentioned, it, it highlighted the fact that, and it was out of the UK, um, and it highlighted the fact that patients with schizophrenia, they are less likely to follow up in a primary care clinic and if they do follow up in a primary care clinic for a um, issue that's not related to their diagnosis of schizophrenia then i'm gonna i'm gonna make this um i'm gonna say this and it's gonna sound catalyst i guess but they're blown off um, oftentimes by the primary care providers as far as like if somebody comes in and they have had weight gain, um, they are probably going to be worked up. They're going to have a thyroid level checked. They're going to be screened for diabetes. They're um, going to have their lipid, their lipid panel checked. They probably are going to get an EKG. Whereas if somebody comes in with schizophrenia and they aren't, a patient with schizophrenia comes into the office and they aren't able to convey, you know, exactly what's bothering them or why they're there that day, um, the weight gain is probably going to be attributed to the antipsychotic. I don't think lots of people in the primary care setting are aware necessarily of the risk associated with cardiovascular disease um, and antipsychotics, just because like we've talked about, the research just isn't there. And so these patients aren't given the same screening tests, and then they also aren't um, kind of motivated to do these lifestyle changes, such as stopping smoking. Um, I feel like in a lot of the research articles that I looked at, um, smoking is one of those things in patients with schizophrenia that is almost like accepted as it's going to happen and it's going to be persistent and it's going to you know be something that they do for the entirety of their lifespan and why try and change that and I think that that is one of those things that we are failing like one of these areas where we're failing as patients because we're just yeah. saying well like you know if I walked in the office and I'd been smoking I guarantee that like my PCP is gonna say like hey don't smoke it's bad for you or better yet they would say what are your thoughts about continuing smoking <laughs> yes yeah they're gonna use motivational interviewing to try and Open get me to uh, you know make that change and I think that sometimes um, people and providers don't know how to talk to and effectively engage with patients that have severe mental illness. And so I think that's one of the unique things just about this rotation in general. And one of your goals that you have for us, Dr. Round, is to be, go out on the unit and to be able to engage with these patients and just to learn about them. And I think that, you know, no matter what we go into, what field, that is something that we can take and use on every single one of our patients because being able to walk on the unit and talk to a patient effectively and you know, see exactly what's bothering them that day is, um, you know, it's an invaluable skill.
You referenced the Witcher article, I believe, mm -hmm. which came out of Southampton. Yes. And even though I, this was about diabetes care specifically, I yes. believe. And I think what they said is it, the goal of equivalent diabetes uh, mellitus care in our patients with severe mental illness is uh, aspirational. Mm -hmm. Right, I, th I think they indicated very clearly that it's behind. Now, yeah. just just to, to be clear, I think they also pointed out that the standard of care for all patients is not at a hundred percent. Right, correct. We're we're not doing this well, as well as could be done across the board. And there's also a treatment gap between patients mm -hmm. with severe mental illness and patients who do not have severe mental illness. Right. Yeah. So. I think I mentioned to you um, a set of criteria that came out from the American Diabetic Association or the American Diabetes Association, I want to say about 15 years ago, that provided guidelines. So if you're going to start an antipsychotic medication mm -hmm. in a patient, there are some things you're supposed to do right off the bat and then the follow-up. I think probably it's important to mention the kinds of things that are, that are required as opposed to the time intervals, because that gets kind of messy. Yeah. So, so what did the ADA say we needed to do? Um, so the ADA, I think we kind of hit on that as far as like the screening tests that we're supposed to do, and we're supposed to check the hemoglobin A1C, and we're supposed to get that lipid panel, um, and then you're going to get a CMP just to check for renal function. You're going to check waist measurements um, to look for metabolic syndrome. And then... I think weight was also another one of those. And then weight, yeah. And then you're going to do a blood pressure check as well um, so that you have these baseline levels that you can then track so that you can see if there are changes um, in the patient. And then you can also catch if the patient, before you start them on the antipsychotic, if they do have underlying diabetes because that's going to change your um, antipsychotic selection as far as what you're going to initially start the patient on. Because if you find that they have an underlying, um, if they have diabetes or if they have hypertension um, or dyslipidemia, that's going to change kind of your route of management from the get-go mm -hmm. versus if they develop that later in the course of um, treatment. Why? So antipsychotic medications have a class warning for weight gain, dyslipidemia, diabetes and accelerated cardiovascular disease. I'm reading that from what you've written. Yep. It's not a boxed warning, it's a class warning, right? Yes. Do all antipsychotic medications act the same way? <laughs> this is a bad yes or no question, right? No. <laughs> uh, so I think one of the things that I found interesting as I looked mm -hmm. through some of these articles was that uh, the complexity of these molecules is beyond what we might guess. It's yeah. not maybe yes, no, it might be that two or three receptors that are affected in series might have some effect. It might be that uh, weight gain alone explains some of this. Mm -hmm. It might be that hormonal changes like uh, changes in leptin or prolactin or glucagon-like mm -hmm. peptide one are, are factors. It could be that, uh, by the way, I'm also reading this, neurotransmitters <laughs> like uh, uh, histamine are mm -hmm. a factor. Now, the, the, some of the basis for that is that clozapine and, and olanzapine, mm -hmm. uh, clozaril and Cyprexa, seem to have the most weight gain associated with them, and they have that uh, strongest binding of the histamine receptor, right? Yeah. 5-HT2C, um, adrenergic uh, beta-3 and alpha-1 receptors might be involved in weight. They talked about maybe there's some sort of effect on the beta cells in the islet, right? Mm -hmm or even uh, changes in neuropeptides like 
Melanocortin 4. Didn't know anything about this. I'd never heard of it before. Love that one. Great one. <laughs> Michaela's favorite uh, neuropeptide. Yes. Of all the peptides she's come them. to love, that's number one. BDNF has been talked about a little bit more in psychiatry, usually in terms of depression. And then uh, there's some interesting stuff about DKA with insulin depletion, right? So mm-hmm. all sorts of interesting kinds of things that have come together. Yeah. In that mix of stuff, are there any patterns that you saw emerging, any, any molecular level kinds of things that would help us kind of uh, remember that olanzapine and clozapine are the most likely to cause weight gain, that uh, quetiapine is not far behind that? Mm-hmm. Something along those lines. Yeah, so um, like what I saw that I thought was interesting was like you mentioned the 5H2C receptor um, the H1 and then the M3, those were most tightly correlated with um, weight gain and antipsychotic use. And then the, as far as the drugs that were most likely to cause weight gain, the KATI study, C-A-T-I-E, was what looked at um, that. And let me pull up what I'd written down. I have it in a document right here. While you're doing that, I'll just say that the Katie trial has been one of the more influential studies that have been published. I think it was published by Joseph Lieberman, I want to say in about 2005, uh, some of the initial data. This was a very big study with a lot of centers across the United States. And their findings kind of were disheartening. The primary outcome measure was how long would somebody stay on an antipsychotic medication before switch. And that was a proxy measure of efficacy. And my recollection is that the longest uh, average length for any given medication was about eight months. And I believe that was olanzapine. So anyway, have you found what you were looking yes, for? Yes, so I have it in front of me now. Um, and so the, the study, it showed kind of exactly what Dr. Roundy was saying. It showed um, olanzapine and actually quetiapine were the, mo- those were the two antipsychotics that were most tightly correlated with a 10-year risk of um, coronary heart disease. And then uh, perfenazine, risperidone, and zeprazidone actually had some benefit. They decreased the risk. Um, And the difference, and so in the study itself, it was showing that um, there was some increased risk with olanzapine and quetiapine, but the only statistical significant difference was between the use of olanzapine and risperidone. and olanzapine was the only one that actually decreased HDL. So that's going to be your good cholesterol, and you want that to be above 60 because at that point it has some cardioprotective benefits. Um, and so I think they didn't give a recommendation. That wasn't the purpose of the Katie trial. But when you tie that back to um, coronary heart disease and looking at what you're going to prescribe, if you do have a patient that is um, more at risk, and maybe has had metabolic syndrome on a couple of different drugs and you're deciding on what to use next, um, you know, I think keeping the back of your mind that olanzapine is going to cause significant weight gain and it has, and it was the one that had a statistical significance for increasing coronary heart disease is of benefit. I think the same Katie trial found that the differences are, are modest in glucose. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, there have been 32 Cochrane reviews published on antipsychotic medication comparisons. And did they find meaningful differences in glucose, cholesterol, and so forth? Everything that I saw didn't have like a statistically significant difference, which is 
I mean, that was kind of why I went and pulled 300 or 400 I think articles. it was 400 articles. Yeah, right? yeah roughly 400. So um, that was the thing. I was trying to find something that, again, I was being biased. I wanted to validate my thoughts uh, on what I thought we should be doing and that there should be a study done that identified and backed up that there was one drug that was better than all the rest. And so far, I'm disappointed. There is not, that is not the case. I think um, one of the take-homes I have is that we often have um, data groupings where we pull a lot of different medications together and we try to make statements about medications. For example, I think test questions might lean to the idea that first-generation antipsychotic medications have fewer problems with weight gain and glucose than do second-generation mm -hmm. antipsychotics. And if you are asked that on a test, the second-generation antipsychotic medication is the correct answer, but the data don't 100% support that, right? Perfenazine is found to have a high uh, risk of increasing uh, blood glucose levels, as I read it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that was the second gen, or the second, or the mid-potency, first-generation antipsychotic used in the Katie yep. trial. Yeah, and I think the other thing, like kind of just thinking about tests and test questions, like for second gens, um, zeprazidone is the one that the um, American Diabetic Association recommends patients with diabetes that have um, severe mental illness, like if they have, if it's a patient that has schizophrenia and diabetes, then you use or should start them on zeprazidone because it has the least risk of causing metabolic syndrome. Unless that patient has a tough time getting meals and won't necessarily have the 500 calories yes. they need to be able to take the medication. Correct. But that's uh, not the test question usually. No. That's, that's the stuff that you have to deal with in the clinic, right? Yeah. And um, I guess I was going to ask you, Dr. Annie, because what I know, um, just kind of watching you here at the clinic, like with Zoprazidone um, and even Aripiprazole, like what, or Abilify, what are your thoughts on those and like the effectiveness as far as in the inpatient setting. So I think there was once an article that I saw that said something along the lines of uh, Zyprexa is better than Risperdal, is better than Quetiapine, is better than Zeprazidone, is better than Zyprexa. Right? Yeah. And and I thought, wait a minute. I, I, think, <laughs> I think the take home point is that there are medications where the NNT is lower, right? I think the data is pretty solid that the NNTs were having benefit. And this isn't necessarily remission, right? This is benefit. Most of our studies are looking at benefit. Uh, the NNTs are lowest with clozapine, and then shortly after that, probably olanzapine and uh, risperidone. After that, your NNTs start moving closer to six and seven, I think, and, mm -hmm. and the NNTs for the first three medications are between two and four. And so that, that difference starts to become profound, right? So I, I tend to be thinking that with my very sick patients here at the state hospital, I want to be using those low NNT medications. I'm also often having difficulty with the patients who struggle to recognize illness, so impairment in insight, and having a long-acting injection that doesn't require uh, a patient decide other, every day whether they're going to you know, continue taking the medication or not. Having that long-acting medication can be truly beneficial in helping somebody stay out of the hospital. Mm -hmm. So now things beside you know, the metabolic effects start to be um, in my mind, things besides uh, the overall effect, right? Yeah. Uh, then I start looking at tolerability, tardive dyskinesia, previous response, things along those lines. And uh, every medication has its place, and yet, you know, the data from authors like Stefan Lucht, and we'll be talking about some of his articles tomorrow again, I think, I think his data pushes us towards things like 
clozapine, right? Mm-hmm. If you have somebody that hasn't been hasn't had success with medication trials, it, we shouldn't wait a long time to get there, right? Yeah. We do have like 17 medications. Maybe you want to try a couple before that or a handful before that, but I think we would know by the time you know, you've hit medication three or four, maybe this is time to consider clozapine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the major discussion points of uh, the uh, 2019 meta-analysis for Mulan was that uh, doctors need to get patients on clozapine sooner than they have been. And it, it is, like you said, just for you know treatment-resistant um, people with schizophrenia, but I think that they were making the point that it's going to save more lives if we can get them on it quicker mm-hmm. and be qu- quicker to act with that. I think we're seeing some very compelling data that uh, talks about clozapine and in, in how beneficial it is to patients with mental illness, with severe schizophrenia, I should say. Mm-hmm. And also I think the long-acting uh, injections, olanzapine and uh, paliperidone, these are medications where the, the companies that are making these molecules, primarily uh, Janssen, who's making the uh, paliperidone long-acting injections, um, they've, they did some remarkable studies where they went into Skid Row in LA and found that giving long-acting injections reduced the number of days that people spend in jail in hospitals. Um, and I think they even, I, I don't hold me to this part, but my, my recollection is they even saw people start to get jobs that hadn't been able to hold down jobs and start making you know, some progress cool. out of that trap that uh, you know, Skid Row is. Mm-hmm. So, so I think there's some great things that are coming out of the medications and they have their unique strength. And I don't know if that answers your question or not. Yeah. Um, but I think more and more I've gone to the point of uh, uh, it doesn't matter if somebody's uh, got a low cardiovascular risk score if they can't leave the state hospital because that's mm-hmm. not fair to keep somebody here. Yeah, Right. exactly. And, and the goal I have then is to be collaborative about how that looks, to talk about dating medications rather than being married to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, how, what does this mean to you and how can you stay on the medication? If you can't, let's keep looking. If you think this works for you and you feel good, then let's figure out a way to get you out of the hospital with this medication. Yeah. So, so we, we use a lot of metformin here, right? Mm-hmm. And that seems to be a pretty significant uh, and helpful step in reducing the risks associated with the antipsychotic weight gain. Mm-hmm. And what I don't know, well, metabolic syndrome, I metabolic should probably syndrome, say, yes. yeah. And then we use a fair number of statins as well. Now, I, I guess my question back to you is, do we have any data yet that suggests that our strategy, which we know helps somewhat with weight gain, and we know helps with LDL, um, do those strategies seem to have any outcomes on mortality? Based on what I've read, I have a hunch we don't have very good data for that. No, and I, I concur with that, like nothing, like the research and um, the amount of people that we're able to enroll in these studies, and like, if it's not an, if it's not a study that's in an inpatient setting, and it's just a um, study that's in the general population, I, one of the things I've noticed is that having participants follow up, especially if the study's done over a couple of years, they're losing. You know, if it's a two thousand person study, they're losing more than 50% of those patients because they just don't follow up. And some of that's because, um, you know, of those socioeconomic mm-hmm. factors and things like that that we've talked about with schizophrenia. Um, and I think that that, you know, comes, ties back into like the downward drift that's associated with schizophrenia, like where we are doing a poor job managing and helping these people kind of manage their illness outside of these very controlled settings. And that comes back to following up, I think, with you know cardiovascular disease and just general health um, yeah. exams and things like that. It's hard for 
these patients to you know remember to take their med and to go get the go to the doctors every six months to you know get a lipid profile checked or something like that. There was an article by Zipkovich, if I'm saying that right. This is uh, <laughs> uh, British Medical Journal. Uh, no, BMC, British Medical, something. I think. It's British Medical something. I'll pull up what the C yeah, is. Yeah, so uh, Ziv Ziv Zivkovich, and this was an MICVA risk assessment mm -hmm. um, or, or analysis on what is the risk of patients taking antipsychotic medications having cardiovascular events, either myocardial infarction or CVA, right? Mm -hmm. My reading of this article is that, first of all, there's just not really great data on this. It's largely case control studies. And those case control studies suggest that there is a two times risk factor for CVA mm -hmm. over n normal population, but not necessarily unmedicated patients with schizophrenia. Yes. And that there doesn't appear to be any myocardial infarction risk associated with taking antipsychotic medications. Yeah. So I read that one. And, um, what, what do you make of that? I just, I, as I read that one and then I read, I can't, I can't remember exactly. Let me pull up the other study that I'd read that kind of refuted exactly what that study was saying. Um, the other study was, it was by Jay Westman. Um, it was in the epidemiology psychiatry um, or psychiatric journal. <laughs> and uh, there we go. Let me put it's, my glasses in, back on. It's in some article. Yes. Um, and in that article that you're mentioning, Dr. Roundy, I think the thing that I found interesting was they controlled for every thing that is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease and MI. Like they controlled for um, BMI, they controlled for, I think, hypertension and dyslipidemia, and then we're comparing those groups. So if you, it felt to me like if you were controlling for all of those things, then how are you going to assess cardiovascular disease in any patients? Like everyone's going to have no risk if you're just controlling for these factors that are the risk. So the article that refuted that <laughs> is the one that we don't really want to, well, we we kind of want to believe it, but we don't like the way they went about the data collection. Is that what you're saying? No, so I'm saying that. Yeah, <laughs> the article that refuted. So that was the that was my pro, my personal problems with that article that said there was no MI risk. The article that refuted it was um, they were looking at specifically like that 10 year risk score, and they were just comparing general uh, the general population to patients with schizophrenia, and they found that there was a significant risk in MI compared to and coronary vascular disease in general. And they threw in CHF as well and found there was a risk for CHF in people with schizophrenia compared to the general population, which I thought was interesting. And I found a couple articles that hedged both ways and their conclusion was, we think there's a risk. It's not stati statistically significant. Uh, more we, research needs to be done. We, we <laughs> want there to be a risk, darn it. Yes. It's, it does seem like the risk should be more obvious based on the cardiovascular risk factors, mm -hmm. but it doesn't seem like it's clearly playing out that way. Yeah, it's not, um, I would say that it's not, like everything's just not clear. It's just kind of like a muddled mess as far as saying whether the fact that an antipsychotic is causing weight gain, is that weight gain actually causing um, you know, coronary heart disease or 
coronary artery disease. And one of the interesting things that I had read was that, oh, let me phrase this the right way. It was that um, with the antipsychotics and their use, most of the patients in these studies, they have been on an antipsychotic for um, like on average, I think 15 to 20 years prior to the start of this study. And there was a study that I looked at that was looking at the antipsychotic use in children and antipsychotic naive patients. And that found that the most of the cardiovascular risk and metabolic syndrome um, occurs in the first 10 years of use of antipsychotics. And, there, and that was just across the spectrum of antipsychotics. It wasn't even associated with a specific one or a specific, you know, second gen. It was the risk happens in the first 10 years. And so then assessing that risk down the line in a population that's, you know, 40 and has been on antipsychotics for 20 years is really difficult. And the other thing was that they noticed, especially it was an article about clozapine, and it said that the weight gain and metabolic syndrome occurs most significantly in the first 10 years. And then the 10 years after that, the next decade, it's actually stable. So there isn't a notable weight gain. So if you can get a patient on clozapine, manage the metabolic syndrome in the first 10 years, they're probably not going to have significant weight gain in the next 10 years. So just to go back and muddy up the two articles that I'm sure are very confusing to everybody right now, the way I read the meta-analysis from uh, Zivkovich was that they looked at the exact same articles to do their meta-analysis and came up with completely different results. Yes. <laughs> and that the difference between the two articles was that the other article had done subgroup analysis to come to the conclusions they had come to. One of the things that did surprise me of the Zivkovich article was that the CVA risk, even though we have this boxed warning for uh, vascular events in the elderly, mm-hmm. it looks like there's at least some signal that those vascular events may be not just in the elderly, that they may be across the board. And I've been surprised that we haven't maybe seen more come out of that uh, since that time. We'll kind of see how that plays out. Mm-hmm. All right, it's about a billion degrees in here, and I think it has something to do with my computer trying to keep those, uh, w- w- was it 550 articles that you sent me? Uh, I think uh, I added 50 more when we sat here. So I think the fish is about this big. <laughs> uh, but I do have a couple of tough questions for you. Yeah. Tell me about intra-abdominal adipose tissue. So intra-abdominal adipose tissue, so like visceral fat is associated, like that's a direct correlation with your coronary artery um, disease risk. And so measuring that is a little bit difficult um, unless you're deceased. Which, Max, or, I think you can speak to that, because <laughs> that you dissect right now. Yes. Oh, I yes. thought you were going to say because he's dead. <laughs> I was say because I was a little uh, heavy over here. But <laughs> That's Max. COVID weight has been a tricky. But yeah. yeah. So that intra-abdominal adipose tissue, I think there was a study looking at patients who were on antipsychotic medications, and they were scanning the patients for both uh, pericardial yeah. uh, fatty tissue mm-hmm. or adipose tissue. Uh, PAT and IAT, intra-abdominal adipose tissue, right? Mm-hmm. And what were the conclusions of that? Do you recall off the top I of your head? I don't recall off the top of my head. I can like picture the article, but I'm going to have to pull it up to, take home unless was, you have it. I, I think uh, from my viewpoint, take home was 
this seems to tie together a couple of important things to me. So uh, I want to take you to the LPPA2 article, the yep. lipo-associated phospholipase A2 activity that seems to be increased by antipsychotic medications. Mm -hmm. Not across the board. No. And not evenly, right? Some mm -hmm. antipsychotic medications may, may do this differently. So as we talk about class risks and then we talk about specific medications in the class, we, we see a general trend, right, amongst all the medications. And then we try to figure out why some medications are different than others to understand what the meaning of the, the disparate data means. And I was very interested by this story of lipo, uh, lipoprotein-associated phospholipase A2, which uh, there was a study done by Shen where they took 450 patients with schizophrenia that had come through a, a looked like a, treatment facility that might be the equivalent of a state hospital, and I can't remember if that was in Germany or China, one of the two countries. I, I think, think it was Hong Kong. Was it Hong Kong? If I'm recalling, so China. China. Um, so, so what they found, 163 patients on clozapine that they looked at, 186 on olanzapine, and 52 with no treatment. What they found was that if you uh, had increases in this uh, lipo associ uh, lipoprotein-associated phospholipase A2, so LPPA2, then that seemed to correlate to the increase in cardiovascular risk factors. And it looked like the reason why is because um, this LPPA2 binds to LDL, and then uh, when LDL gets oxidized, if LPPA2 is bound to that, then it creates these non-esterified free fatty acids, which are problematic. Mm -hmm. Does that sound right? Yeah. And then um, kind of the interesting thing that I had seen in that article was that it was the ratio of, uh, maybe I'm confusing that with the adiponectin article, but it was like the, yeah. the ratio of that was not necessarily clear. They wanted to look at it again to further study it? I think this is the start of a story maybe, okay. right? Yeah. And and maybe the other story that we looked at, I think, was there was an inflammation article for metabolic syndrome where inflammation may be a factor in, uh, well, IL-6 and leptin may predict the diabetes onset. And, and they made an interesting correlation that there's some association between inflammation and schizophrenia. I think mm -hmm. one of the very first podcasts we talked about uh, the pathophysiology of schizophrenia uh, I think we mentioned that there's this uh, story about inflammation that we don't fully understand as yeah. well, right? And and they looked at uh, they had looked at CRP and IL-6 and leptin in the past, and what they said was it might be that patients who have elevated leptin levels already are going to be those patients that have the problematic transition to mm -hmm. uh, the risk factors for metabolic syndrome. I thought that was interesting, and there seemed to be some association between leptin, which you called an adiponectin. Yeah, so it was a leptin to adiponectin ratio. Right. Because I think the one that they found had some um, correlation to the risk of metabolic syndrome developing. Mm -hmm. But um, the looking at like adiponectin, because adiponectin is anti-inflammatory and leptin is considered an inflammatory cytokine. Um, and looking at those two markers individually didn't have any significant correlation, but when you looked at the leptin to adiponectin ratio, then the area under the curve was statistically significant um, as far as being able to correlate back to metabolic syndrome and the risk of that. 
the thing that I th well, I, I think the point is from all of this, we're still trying to elucidate the factors, whether it's mm -hmm. neurotransmitters, whether it's uh, neuropeptides, whether it is just a sedentary lifestyle that might be worsened by uh, exacerbation of negative symptoms from an antipsychotic medication, whether it's hormones, whether it's something that's none of the mm -hmm. above, we still don't have a good answer to that. No, and like the other thing, so I just pulled it up too, with the lipoprotein lipase A2, I believe, it was that um, I went and looked uh, at some journal articles just from the cardiovascular standpoint, and they actually found that that serum marker has like zero correlation to cardiovascular disease. So then like that study, I feel like... Which is funny because that article seemed to make the case that it's part of a standard cardiovascular yeah. disease workup, yeah. right? So then it was like you could use that serum marker and add it to your risk profile, but you're not going to actually use it in a risk assessment score. And so then at that point to me, it was like, so then why waste anyone's money ordering that lab? Because it doesn't have any true significance because the real predictor is going to be getting a, like the one that works most of the time is getting a CT to look at calcium deposits, um, which also comes with its own risks from radiation exposure. We're a long ways from knowing how to reduce the impact of antipsychotic medications on our patients, even though it looks like if we just provide standard of care, it may be mm -hmm. enough. Yeah, and that's kind of what I've taken away from this, um, you know, research and looking into this is that if you're, you know, willing to put in the extra legwork from, you know, a management standpoint, from like from the psychiatrist standpoint, if you collaborate and you have inpatient um, patients, then you're going to have them followed up regularly with primary care. And if you're seeing these patients out in the community from a primary care setting, um, then just be willing to take the time and do the same screening test that you would do for anyone else that walked into your office. It might require more legwork, but um, that's the only way we're going to close that gap as far as, you know, the equality and treatment of patients that are, you know, high functioning as far as society views them versus our patients that are struggling with, you know, severe mental illness. And if we can, um, you know, evaluate them, talk to them and, you know, kind of respect them and see them as more than their disease, then we'll be able to improve those outcomes. I think it, that will come rapidly. And I don't think it takes, um, you know, multiple high level degrees to recognize that and to, you know, pursue just, you know, equality of care. I'm going to make a, I have two main takeaways from this discussion today. So I'll start with the first one while you guys think about what your final take home is. My first take home is that, well, I actually have a pre-take home, one more comment, and that is that our antipsychotic medications are not only used in treatment of schizophrenia, they're also used in some cases for autism and in augmentation of treatment, what's sometimes called treatment-resistant depression. Mm -hmm. I would say that any time a patient has that, that uh, antipsychotic medication on board, those ADA guidelines are immediately part of the EHR, right? That comes mm -hmm. in and there's triggers for, every time there's a medication change, there may be a new baseline that's required. It's not clear to me if that's the case or not. But very, very carefully, you know, staying adherent to those every three month, every six month, every 12 month kinds of triggers that come up with that. And, and I think what I took away as, a, as one of my two takeaways, I guess I have three, um, 
that I'll throw out before you guys jump in is waist circumference seems to be something that across the board, all of the articles seem to be surprised that waist circumference mattered more than anything else we did. Mm -hmm. That seems to be the one thing that's over and over and that might re be related to the intra-abdominal adipose tissue. So make sure that you're measuring waist circumference and that is one of the things that the ADA has recommended in their guidelines mm -hmm. for management of patients taking antipsychotic medications. The second pre-takeaway to your takeaway would be that I appreciate you doing this podcast. I have a lot of medical students who come through who are planning on going into primary care and even though I tell my students, gosh, I really want you to find the intersection of what you're passionate about in psychiatry, um, I have a number of medical students that say, well, I'm interested in providing very good care for patients uh, as a primary care physician that have mental illness. And I say, you know, I don't have a podcast talking about how to manage metabolic syndrome symptoms of, of uh, antipsychotic use. And you have no interest in primary care. <laughs> <laughs> and you were very passionate about this. And I was very, very glad to see that. And I think it's not terribly complicated right now how you might treat these symptoms. The issue is more recognition and then you know, standard of care that, that most people are doing day in and day out in primary care settings. Mm -hmm. Statins and, uh, and uh, anti-diabetic agents, right? I, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm sure that's not the right word for what I would suggest, but uh, or yeah. for what, what we might use, but that's it, right? And then like your antihypertensives, but then I feel like with the antihypertensives, those have more of a propensity to interact negatively with some of like the mood stabilizers and antipsychotics so then you have to be very judicious in how you're managing um, those drugs. And I'm not sure those show up quite as often as, I mean, it, like clockwork here, if we start an antipsychotic, it seems like we see the, the changes in hemoglobin A1C and, mm -hmm. and lipids. Not in every patient, right? But but it's yeah. so common that we're used to that. We I, I don't know that I see the uh, blood pressure creep up quite the same way. And uh, uh, statins and, uh, oh gosh, the medication just escaped me that we were talking about before for uh, for both weight and uh, glucose. Metformin. Metformin, thank you. Yep. I mean, this is, this should be in everybody's wheelhouse, I think. Yeah. Right. So those are my take homes. Uh, Michaela, what was your take home from this podcast? Um, I think Elliot just made some really good points about equity of care and making sure that, you know, you're treating your patients who are high functioning the same as those who may be struggling to access care. Um, and in addition to that, in one of the articles that was from Scandinavia, they talked about how in primary care there's often over or underlooked um, and overlooked um, cardiovascular disease in patients who have severe mental illness. And it just talks about, you know, like you said, um, being able to notice this and acknowledge it and treat it similarly to how you would in another patient um, because you do have the ability in a primary care visit to add at least three um, up to three diagnoses and so I think again just being aware as a primary care practitioner or otherwise that when you're seeing these patients um, it's just important to look at them I know holistic is a buzzword but to holistically look at their patients beyond something they may be diagnosed with let's see Max take home well, I uh, I really liked how Elliot mentioned the like kind of the the bias that uh, that a lot of mental illnesses uh, face or people with mental illness, especially patients with schizophrenia, and uh, found it interesting. You know the 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 fact about patients that smoke and they're just like you know that's that's just part of uh, of this uh, disease and you know you know you basically just expect them to do that. I think it's important to 
try to check your biases and to, to treat patients um, with that same protocol and follow-up. Follow-up seems to be key, making sure you're monitoring these patients as you're treating them. I like it. Scott? Um, overall, I really enjoyed this podcast. I My um, take home for me is just like, uh, just to make sure to like uh, go over or the side effects of the antipsychotics mostly, especially the ones that can uh, affect cardiovascular, just such as uh, QT prolongation and all that. And yeah. I, I like, one of the things I don't talk about enough, I think, uh, Scott, every once in a while, it's intimidating to be a bunch around a bunch of medical students. I don't know right. if it is for you, it is for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm intimidated by Scott. So. And uh, one of the things I notice with my nurse practitioner students is that one of their unique strengths is recognizing the patient interaction, right? And, and somehow nurses have a better sense of talking to patients and what that looks like in, uh, in discussions about medication, right? Uh, we talk about it as being consent for treatment, but I think uh, nurses would probably see it very differently than consent. I'm getting permission to treat you the way I want to and would probably say it's very, very different. It's a collaborative process and I think, I think you, you are bringing that to the forefront in a very, very great way. Thank yes, you. Right. Elliot, uh, before you give me your take home, uh, I was very impressed with the way you dumped, was it 737 articles into that folder that we uh, reviewed? I don't know. I think I added at least 73 more. So we may be at 1,000 before the day is done. <laughs> Uh, in, in all seriousness, I was very impressed with the way that you went about this. D tell me how, it, tell me the process, if you wouldn't mind, what did you learn going through this process? Um, well, I think it came back to, it must have been during our first week when we went up to a medication hearing and you had asked us to look something up on a specific condition. and the articles that I was pulling, like at first I went to UpToDate and like I was using that as like my source of reliable information. And then from there, I, I don't know, I went down the Google death trap um, and I was getting things that backed up what I was, thought I was looking for. Um, but my biggest take home, I guess, in doing this was being able to, you know, go through and rely and look at reliable sources and get um, studies that backed up uh, or, or spoke to where we are at with cardiovascular disease and severe mental illness. I think uh, I, I went in with a goal and I went in and thought I, you know, I thought this is how it's going to turn out. Like we probably manage it all right and there's going to be studies that show that we do that. And, you know, as I did the research, that was not what I found. I found like there's not a lot of data and the data that we have on it is poor um, and we're doing it a poor job managing cardiovascular disease in this patient population. Uh, but for me, I think the biggest thing that I learned and will take you know, forward my medical career is um, the ability to look through you know, journal articles and kind of evaluate, is this a reliable source? Is this you know, data that I can speak to or not? Uh, and can I take that and implement it into my patient care? So that was kind of what I took home and definitely one of the biggest things I learned about this, other than you know cardiovascular disease and patients with schizophrenia, I think uh, the information we know about the latter, cardiovascular disease and schizophrenia, will change. But I don't know that the process for finding good information will, yeah. and that's one of the primary goals I have with this assignment. My impression was that you did um, 
the bibliography diving where you would see something referenced and then you would follow that article up. Yeah, I definitely, I didn't start by doing that. I kind of started by, you know, just putting a search in for specific things that I wanted, but that was time consuming to say the least. So then like once I found reliable articles from sources that, um, you know, could speak to this issue, then I would just kind of go into like the suggested articles or I would go into um, the sources that that article itself had used and then go look at those articles. And if I could get access to them uh, either free or through like a library exchange, then that's what I went about doing. My impression or my experience is that the first article I read on any topic takes me about two hours. I, I look at it and I'm like, okay, hold on. Leptin, lipoprotein, lipophosphate, hold on, what is that again? LP, L, you know, I'm, I'm just like, yeah. I'm like banging my head against a wall. And then the second article is a little bit easier. And then the third article is a little bit easier. And then the fourth article is a little bit easier. And then you go back and you look at the first article again and it makes a little bit more sense. And you're starting to build this, this story that seems to be growing in the data out there. How similar or different was your experience? How does my experience compare to yours, I guess is the... Um. I would say my experience was definitely similar. So the f article, the first article I started with was the lipoprotein lipase A2, and that put me looking more at the cardiovascular um, side of things and seeing exactly what that was and if like that was a serum marker that was even used. And then I remembered I was supposed to come back to the psychiatry and the cardiovascular part of it and tie those together, and that's not what I was doing. So I wasted probably an hour doing that, and then. I, but but I, I don't know that you wasted an hour. What you found was it didn't take you anywhere. Yeah, it didn't take me anywhere. So like once I pulled myself out of that, and I went through the article again, and that probably took me like 30 minutes going through that article a second time. And then that put me on a pathway where I was looking at, I had really narrowed my search and was looking at more of the diagnosis of cardiovascular disease in patients with schizophrenia. And the articles that I was getting and had first put into the folder they were so, um, they were so specific that it wasn't going to allow us to have a, I think, robust discussion. And so I think I even told you, I was like, I deleted some articles that I put in there. <laughs> and I think your guidance was, well, don't do that. Just put a note next to them. And my thought was like, I'm going to be like spending an hour typing notes for my 900 articles. Like I can't do that. Um, oh, no, no, no. It's just a, like in the name of the article. Don't look at useless or put them in a folder that says some sort of name. I, but if 900 of those, like, you know, I, that's a couple hours, I think. A couple of years. Yeah. Uh, but I think that um, I that once I got on a pathway and got into the articles that had the meat of what I was looking for, that it would it got it got faster and smoother. Like I was able to get through some of those in probably 30 minutes on average but I mean I felt like I spent at least 30 minutes just looking at like what the study methods were what you know how does this compare to the articles that I want to speak to and you know does this conclusion even make sense or is it just gonna be another thing because I felt like I had a lot of articles where I was like well we don't know and that was the conclusion it's like well that, I need something more than that <laughs> after a while those I, I don't know add up yes one of the things that I think helps me as well and and since we've kind of jumped into this I I really did think you did a great job building the content for this, and I think probably probably better than most uh, third-year students in their first or second rotation do, right? So this was, you, you did an abnormally good job with this, and I think, you know, this is part of a very good group. Um, 
My students always do a good job, so if you're a past student listening, don't take this personally, you're all great. Uh, the other thing that I think is very helpful is that first paragraph in any paper, right? It tells you mm -hmm. the summary of what seems to be the state of the science that's fairly well agreed upon, right? Yep. Any comments about that? I, I always feel like I look at that first paragraph and I, at the beginning of this, I definitely put a little bit too much weight into it because then I think I look, had like four or five articles that I put into my folder and then I went back and I decided I'm gonna read all five of these and the summary was a little bit more rosy in my opinion than what the actual like data like data found and what the actual discussion talked about and so then I think that's what forced me to spend like more time reading my articles and definitely being um, you know more labor intensive in my search my searches and like what I was gonna talk about today so so that's actually a great point and that is that even though those those key articles that are cited at the beginning of many articles seem to take on a life and meaning of their own mm -hmm. I, I do find going back and looking at those key articles makes a substantial difference in how I view the entire literature base and and the foundation upon which which it's built and, and I think uh, before I give my last take home I'd be interested in your final take home and we'll stop on that note um. Yeah, I think my final take home um, from all this was really, you know, kind of like everybody's mentioned, was to just treat all of your patients, you know, with equity and to, um, you know, look past look past the disease and that they have or might have, and um, you know, just do good by you know that individual as a human being and as a person, and then you will be doing and practicing good medicine. I think that's what my take home was. Like the, I've enjoyed looking at the cardiovascular side of things and that is an interest of mine. Uh, and I enjoyed, you know, diving into the topic of antipsychotics and schizophrenia like that was beneficial to me. But the biggest take home was, you know, just if you're doing good by every person that comes and sees you or that you interact with, like you're gonna be practicing good medicine. A question before my final take home, and that is, it seems like that life expectancy gap, the mortality gap, mm -hmm. bothered you. Uh, yeah, I would say it like, for lack of a better term, it irritated me. Like it definitely like ate, uh, ate at my core a little bit, just because I feel like we have the tools to assess people's um, cardiac risk and they're very simple. Like it's not, they're not hard to do. They're not hard to evaluate. Uh, now adherence is a different topic all in of itself. And we have difficulty with people adhering whether they have severe mental illness or not. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can skate on not, like skate by and not order a test for someone that you would if they, you know, didn't have a, a, mental, a mental, you know, disability. I'm bothered by it too, just so you're aware. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you took that away. My, my final take home is that uh, for many years, I think there were a lot of there was a lot of pushback on what is the baseline nature of schizophrenia, what is the net cause of the antipsychotic medications. I think it's very clear that at times in some individuals, some medications clearly cause problems. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I think we know that, and I think. Um, 
it's not just a random noise in the background. We, we think that there are these associations that we think we can see. We think that they're starting to, to correlate to biochemical markers, uh, neurochemical markers, hormonal markers, what, whatever the marker is, neuropeptide markers. There seems to be some kind of correlation there and that we'll figure that out eventually. And uh, I really like that you tackled this topic and agree the mortality gap sucks. Great. On that note, guys, thank you so much. Great podcast, Elliot. Uh, team out. Team out. Team out. Team out. Team out. Team out. <laughs>